The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is a real honor to welcome Mr. Tom Neltner. Mr. Neltner has an interesting background. He is both a chemical engineer and an attorney, and his long career has focused on healthy and safe environments where he looked at the intersection of chemicals and the law. He is the director of the Pew Charitable Trust Food Additives Project, which we're going to talk about today. That project has been examining the strengths and weaknesses of the current U.S. federal regulatory system as it pertains to the safety of chemicals commonly added to food. Welcome, Mr. Neltner. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Melinda. I'm glad to appear on Food Sleuth. Well, I have to tell you, as I was preparing for this interview, I kept thinking, as a dietitian, I teach people about food safety and ingredients in foods. And I've always found there were basically two kinds of of folks. And one was they trusted that if a food was sold in a supermarket, it had to be safe. And then there was another camp that felt like, you know, I don't trust the government. I don't trust what's in my food. And I don't like to see all those long names on a food label that I don't know how to pronounce. So hopefully the Food Additives Project will shed some light on this situation. Before we get started, tell me about the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, Pew Charitable Trust is a nonprofit uh, that's been around for many years, um, and it works on a variety of issues, including health and medical safety, is, um, and is part of those efforts. Uh, food additives is one of its projects. So you're a chemical engineer and an attorney. How did you become interested in the topic of food additives? Well, over the years, I've made them. I've made food additives. I've made antibiotics. I've made pesticides. I've made drugs. Um, but as I've worked on chemical safety, it became clear that a closer look at food additives was important. And that's why it was nice to see Pew investing in a three-year project to really look at the issue, do a deep dive into the issue, and determine what's working and what's not. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of the project. Now, let me first just ask you, what did you do? What, what does the project entail? Well, first of all, all of our work had to be published in peer-reviewed journals. Mm-hmm. We set a very high standard for that because we see the value of having people, experts in their field, review the literature, review our work, critique it, and that back-and-forth process makes the science stronger. Absolutely. So we published six peer-reviewed journals um, as of last week, and those journal articles um, cover a wide range of issues, but mostly they start with a what is the system about? Then we convened a series of workshops with industry, public interest groups, academics, and learned and dove into how do you determine whether something's safe? What's the science? And then we stepped back and went through and developed some specific issues like looking at conflicts of interest and how many data gaps do we have out there? Where are we missing information? 
and then also looking at the science, how rigorous is the science that the agency uses when it does get a chance to review the safety of additives. All right. Well, we should probably explain to our listeners first, you know, what is a food additive? There are many ingredients on a product label. How would you define a food additive? Well, we stick with what Congress defined back in 1958, so 55 years ago when this law was passed, Congress did a very broad definition. Virtually anything that gets added to food or comes in contact with food can qualify as a food additive. So the things that appear on your ingredient list, those are additives. But also things that are used to make your food, um, processing aids or preservatives, things that may not be on the label but still may be in your food. The other part that's often a surprise is Congress said that chemicals that could get into food from packaging, they're also additives. Mm -hmm. We've estimated that there are 10,000 chemicals that have been allowed either by industry or by FDA to be added to food. Okay, now let me make sure I understand something. I've been under the assumption that if I purchase a product, everything that's in that product, with few exceptions, I think there are some allowances for maybe bug or insect parts that don't have to be reported on the label, but essentially most, if not all, ingredients need to be listed in order of predominance on a food label, a food ingredient label. Is that not exactly true? Well, that's true. So first, we're only talking about things that are intentionally added. Okay. Nobody would add contaminants to it. So we're talking about chemicals that are intentionally added. Okay. Second, there are categories that allow you to group them, like flavors. It can be artificial flavors or natural flavors, um, natural colors. So you don't have to identify the chemical when you can go with a group listing. But also if it's on packaging, if the chemicals are in packaging, you don't need to list them. And if they are used in manufacturing and are not present in the final product in what's called significant amounts, mm-hmm. that's a little vague term, but if there's not much of it or shouldn't be much of it in the final product, you don't have to list it on the ingredients, even if it is there. All right. Now, you are mostly interested in finding out how rigorous the testing was, how good are the safety tests. What were your surprises? Well, one of the initial surprises was that FDA does not have to review every additive that goes into food, including the ones that would appear on an ingredient list, that the agency is not or has taken an interpretation that says it doesn't have to review every single additive. Congress created a loophole in the law that's called generally recognized as safe, Mm -hmm. and the agency and industry have interpreted that loophole to say that no, but they do not need to notify industry. The end result is that a company can decide that a chemical is safe, add it to food, and not ever tell the industry or tell FDA. So FDA is in the dark about the use of about 1,000 additives. Yeah. Those are, can be things that are not just in the final product that could be in packaging or used to make the food. Well, that was my surprise, too, from this report. You know, I was under the assumption that everything that was in the product had an independent review of safety. And that's always what we look for, certainly, in nutrition research. We know that whenever there's um, 
the, a conflict of interest, and they're rampant. You know, if the food industry does the research and tells me that something's safe, I'm a little more skeptical than if an independent organization or researcher did the same kind of research and tells me it's safe. So I'm concerned about the findings of this report. We believe that who makes the decision is important. And where there's conflicts of interest, it can bias that decision in subtle ways. And what we found is that when a company picks the people who make the decision, that there's a conflict of interest there, and it can be serious um, using an institute of medicine sort of framework. Absolutely. One of the other surprises was that if you use a chemical in a non-food product, you can't add it to that product without telling the EPA in that case. In other words, you can the rules for additives are actually less stringent than the ones for chemicals that go into non-food consumer products. And that's partly because the additives law is so old. It was adopted in 1958. Mm-hmm. And the law for consumer products were adopted in the 70s and are more stringent. So I, I'm looking at a review of the report that Marion Nessel did, Conflicts of Interest in the Regulation of Food Safety, a Threat to Scientific Integrity. Absolutely. And that was her invited commentary about your research. And what she said, she has a great question here. Her question is, how is it possible that the FDA permits manufacturers to decide for themselves whether their food additives are safe? And that is my question, too, as a dietitian. How is it possible? Well, FDA and industry have interpreted the law as not requiring the agency to be notified. And that's something Congress wrote into the law. Congress said that if it's generally recognized as safe, the company can use it. And while they're silent on whether the FDA has to be notified, the agency has said that notice is not required. Hmm. So it's a loophole that's effectively swallowed the law because most of the new chemicals that are used in food go through the grass loophole. Sometimes they voluntarily notify the agency, but not always. And because the not always are in secret, we don't know how many there are. That's where we came up with the estimate of 1,000. But it could be much larger than that. Well, how many additives would you say are in the American food supply, roughly? We don't know. And neither does FDA. Partly because of the exemption, this grass loophole. But also, it does not know how much is used on an annual basis. There's no reporting mechanism. And if I could compare it to a chemical that goes into another consumer product, something other than food, in that system, if you use it in the product, you have to report to EPA how much goes into it. But there's no corollary for FDA. So whereas EPA is told how much of a chemical is used and goes into commerce, FDA doesn't get that same information for food. Again, it's an old law. And that old law has left FDA without the information it needs to be able to make sound decisions and to set priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the other things that really surprised me was the lack of testing for reproduction toxicity. So, you know, I always look at which populations are at higher risk for certain foods or substances in their diet. And I always come back to pregnant women, lactating women, and infants and children. 
they're usually going to be more susceptible to damaging ingredients. And I just assume that if an ingredient is in a product, there's been some testing in the past to make sure that it's not going to affect, say, a fetus in development. You know, as a dietitian, you've, you hit the nail on the head that you think of those nutrients that are in the food that pregnant women or children would be eating, and you shouldn't have to think about what are the additives and could they be affecting those children. The problem is what we found in our analysis is that, the, that there's so many data gaps, places where the chemicals haven't been sufficiently studied to even meet FDA's own guidelines, that in some ways we're working in the dark. In large part, that leaves us dependent on the competency of the companies that make the food in order to ensure safety. FDA doesn't have the resources, and it doesn't have the authorities to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have some hopes for the end result of this of this research that you're doing. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, I hope this helps justify additional funding of the FDA so that we can have some sort of independent reviews, but (laughs) I'm not going to hold my breath on that. In preparation for our interview, though, Tom, what I did was I went to the FDA website and I looked up grass substances, and I thought it was really interesting. They have different definitions, like there's different rankings of grass substances. There's type 1 through 5. And I started going down through that list and looking for substances now that I'm thinking, hmm, well, like, for example, um, and you probably know this better than I, so, for example, if, if, if it's grass with a little three next to it, it says that it's used at levels that are now current and in the manner now practiced, uncertainties exist requiring that additional studies be conducted. So you've got an ingredient, I'll, I'll just throw out an example that I've researched called carrageenan. And it's got a grass status, but it's got a type of conclusion, which is number three, which leaves me a little concerned. And then there are more rankings. A corn silk, for example, gets a a ranking of five. And that description is, in view of the almost complete lack of biological studies, the select committee has insufficient data upon which to evaluate the safety of substance as used as intended. And I'm thinking to myself, then why is it in in the food? It's a good question. And we don't get into specific additives because we're focused on the systemic problem. Right. But that database that you're looking at, where that information comes from, is what we did our analysis of. And we found that FDA's own analysis says that there are 1,000 additives that have no toxicology data or insufficient toxicology data. And that there were and also a 1,000 additives that should have reproductive studies that they didn't have in their system. Those are major data gaps about things that are very real to people. And the problem primarily is FDA feels like it needs to prove that an additive is unsafe to get it out of food. That's not the standard. Congress in 1958 said it should not go into food unless we can be reasonably certain it's safe. In other words, a presumption that an additive is unsafe until proven safe. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want the consumer to have to question or have to figure out what which additives are okay for them or not. They mm-hmm. felt that consumers should be able to have confidence in the food supply to know that the additives are all safe. 
And unfortunately, that's a difficult assumption to make given the data gaps we found. Mm. And again, it, it leaves it leaves the consumer dependent on the motivation and competence of food manufacturers rather than on the agency that has the responsibility to protect the food supply from chemical additives. Unfortunately, FDA lacks both the authority or the resources to fix those problems. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Thomas Neltner. He is the director of the Pew Charitable Trust Food Additives Project. He is both a chemical engineer and an attorney, and he is looking at the intersection of chemicals in the law, specifically as they relate to food additives in this instance. Yeah, you know, I remember teaching consumers the difference between foods and drugs and supplements. And one of the concerns that I've always had about supplements is that they get onto the market, they don't have to prove safety or effectiveness before they get there. And I've always thought, well, with food, it's different. Everything that's put in the food has to be tested first to make sure it's safe. And um, that little bubble of security that I that I had at one time has now been, been broken. Well, before I started this project, I was more involved in environmental areas, and I had the same presumption, and I've gone through the same learning process. You're a registered dietitian. You're familiar with food, so if you were unaware of it, just as I was before, I'm wondering how many consumers don't realize the gaps in protection that you would expect food to have when every American could be exposed to it. Absolutely. And you know, it's so interesting. I One of my former guests was Bill Marler, who is a food safety attorney, and I'm sure you probably know each other. But he has a great quote, and it is that if a free market is going to work properly, then people need to be fully informed to make smart decisions in the marketplace. And I think if nothing else, what, what Pew's Report on Food Additives really did for me was kind of show me that, boy, we citizens must be extremely vigilant and hold our government organizations accountable really to keep us safe. I mean, that's, these are our tax dollars at work. And the idea that there are so many additives that do not have those kinds of safety testing procedures that we would expect to be safe leaves me concerned and wanting to do something about it, but I'm not sure what to do at this point. And I, I don't know if you're free to speak about you know, if you were in charge and something that you could do to, to change the food system to make it safer based on what you've seen with this additives project, do you have any ideas of where we might start as a community of citizens? Well, that's a great question, Melinda. And unfortunately, I am not in charge. And <laughs> right. An agency that is, is directed by a Congress in times where there are limited resources and limited authority. So, I think we're completing our research phase of this project. We're going to be looking at how to address the problems we've identified. and Maybe in a few months we can talk again and I can give you a much more specific idea of what consumers can do and maybe even talk about some of those specific additives you might be interested in. That sounds great. And I'm sure that the website is also going to have, or I I would hope that it would have that kind of information if our listeners want to go for more information. Is that correct? Uh, We hope so, yeah. It's part of the planning that we're working on. Yeah, okay. There are many resources that your staff have forwarded to me, lots of 
studies, reports about this, including blogs and commentary and the absolute, the report itself, as well as the journal articles. So there's lots of information if people want to know more. What were some other revelations that you got out of this report? Well, we also know in working with industry that many of the companies are very much dedicated to making sure the food is safe. And when this law was adopted, most of those companies were local. They were they were in the communities. Yes, there were some national brands, but there was still that accountability. We're in a global food market now with many of the foods coming from overseas or many of the additives coming from overseas. And in that diverse marketplace, it makes it it makes it even more important to be sure that those additives are reviewed for safety when there's less accountability. And if you're looking at an additive, it really, again, depends on knowing who that food manufacturer is, that ultimately you're relying on the motivation and the competency of that, of that company in, in ensuring the food is safe. We've worked with many of the companies in our process, um, in our program. We've met with the associations, but more importantly, we've met with the companies behind those associations. And many of them operate with great integrity. It is a diverse marketplace, though. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, companies have a lot to lose if something were to go wrong. So if an additive was there and suddenly a child died or if a large group of people became ill, it's really hard for companies to recover from that kind of damage. And we've seen that with certainly with food safety issues, you know, foodborne illness. But at the same time, there could be ingredients in foods that have more of a, I don't know, not not so obvious an effect on, on individuals. You know, maybe we're getting sicker sooner, but we don't exactly know why or what specifically it is. We may never know. But I would certainly hope that FDA would become more empowered as a result of this research to be able to demand more toxicology studies. And, and we're talking about feeding trials there in specifically, and and there weren't many feeding trials, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Correct. Less than half of the additives had a feeding study of any type, and the feeding study is a core way to determine what is safe and what's not. There are ways to fill the gaps, and there's a lot of new technologies using computers to predict it or um, what's called cell-based testing where you're using it in a um, in a robotic testing system rather than on live animals, which has a, which raises some ethical issues. But in this whole scheme, the, uh, this whole system, it's important to keep in mind that we need to fill these gaps, use all the tools we have to fill the gaps, and we need to keep um, we need to restore the consumer confidence in the integrity of the food supply. Mm-hmm. Many of these problems that we're talking about, as you correctly noted, take a time to show up, reproductive problems. To make the connection between the exposure and the health impact, we don't have a system that could do that. So if there were health effects being occurring, and we don't know whether there are, if there were health effects showing up, we would not be able to notice it unless it were severe. And we just... We just want to deal with those, what I'll call chronic or latent effects. Mm-hmm. Those are the primary focus of our research. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that is the problem in health and nutrition research is that there are so many variables in, in a free-living population that 
it really becomes impossible unless, as you say, it's a direct consequence. I, I ate this soup, I, you know, and the person died the next day and the soup was analyzed and they found a toxin. But rarely does that happen. So it's an issue. And I don't know if you want to talk about nanoparticles, but that was another component of concern. And I don't know if people really know what nanoparticles are, but do you want to comment at all on that? Well, nanoparticles are a big issue. Um, that APA has, or sorry, FDA has proposed guidance to address, and have said that if, in this draft guidance, that if you add, if it's added directly to food, the agency should see it and make the safety decision. In this case, they said if the particle is being designed so small that it acts differently than large particles, then the agency has to make the decision, and it can't be eligible for this grass loophole. That's a step forward. The guidance is still draft, and they need to get that finalized would be a, a help. Mm-hmm. These particles are all um, are interesting, and they provide some real benefits to the food, but these questions FDA said needed to be addressed. Absolutely. And just so our listeners know, this nanoparticle is one-thousandth of a micrometer, And so I don't think many of us can get our brains around the size of particle we're talking about, but we're talking about a a chemical or a compound that can, that, that we can inhale, that can go through the pores of our skin. So I think that there is concern about certainly nanotechnology and nanoparticles with good reason. And I was looking at some of the ways in which nanoparticles might be used in the food supply. So for example, I don't think this is really critical, but one of the issues or one of the um, jobs that a nanoparticle might be assigned would be to help ketchup flow more smoothly out of a bottle. And I thought, you know, that's really not essential. There are all kinds of uses. Some, you, some people would find more important than others. Right. I agree. Use to make sure that the technology is safe, whatever its purpose. Right. Now, do you want to let us know where consumers can go to learn more about the Food Additives Project and your findings? Our information is available at um, www.pewtrusts.org. And just click on the link to find out about the um, health programs and the food programs. You can also find out about all the other work we do on public safety or voting rights or uh, many of the other projects that the, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust has. I'm a big fan of the Pew Charitable Trust. I just want to throw that out. And I, you can actually go also to this website that you've shared with us. We'll make sure it's available online too, Tom. And uh, people can even get a live uh, video interview with you as well. I know that's there. I wanted to share with listeners too the FDA.gov site and individuals can search on GRAS, which is um, G-R-A-S, substances. And the the report that I mentioned earlier to look at what type or ranking ingredients have uh, the information that you use to do your report that's on that's online too. We just have a minute, and I just want to make sure I give you a chance to add anything that I may not have tapped on. Well, Melinda, I think you've hit the primary issues that are out there. It's important for dietitians. It's important for doctors. It's important for the public to understand these food additive issues, and we appreciate you. Uh, bringing some of this uh, attention to the issue. Okay, so we have 
uh, website, www.pewtrust.org. The name of the project is the Food Additives Project. And again, we've been speaking with Mr. Thomas Niltner. He's the director of that project, and he has been examining the strengths and weaknesses of the current U.S. federal regulatory system as it pertains to the safety of chemicals commonly added to food. Mr. Neltner, what a pleasure it's been to speak with you. I want to thank you for being my guest, and I also want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Mr. Neltner, for your time. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you.